jump on the live stream now. Cool. Let's We've probably see. talked about all the stuff you just Yeah, no, 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 we have nothing to talk about. Hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another meetup of the Data on Kubernetes community. I believe we are now in officially meetup number 63. Unofficially, this is already, we've already passed number 70. This is a really special one, and we're just getting warmed up and having a lot of interesting side conversations. But Matt Jarvis is no, no stranger to the camera, uh, <laughs> speaking ah. about his, his past in, in working in film. Um, one of not many people who studied film and actually worked in film for a while, and as a result, got into technology. Um, as usual, if you're not checking us out already on LinkedIn, Twitter, Slack, jump in. Um, always happy to, to get involved, uh, continue the conversation, etc. Matt is also a, a CNCF ambassador, so we're kind of crossing paths on that. I'm not a CNCF ambassador. I'm not a CNCF ambassador. ambassador an, but... an aspiring, a soon-to-be CNCF ambassador. I will definitely put in a good word for you. Um, <laughs> So we can cross paths there. Matt is a man who's worn many hats. Do not be confused if you go to Google and type in Matt Jarvis and you see a uh, a footballer who used to play for Millwall. There is no relation, apparently. Uh, Matt has done much cooler things than that, uh, which we'll be getting into. Uh, the thing, the, the key topic today is cybersecurity, but I think there's going to be a way to tie in a lot of other things. As you see behind him, he also has a really cool record collection. I believe that's a film poster as well behind you to your right, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I have lots of, it's it's some artwork, not film. Okay, okay, but it's, it's some yeah, nice yeah. artwork. And then yeah. and then behind you to your left, also a nice little throwback, the MesosCon, because um, yeah. you also had some experience in the Mesosphere. I um, did, yeah. Anyway, Matt, very big welcome to the Data on Kubernetes community. As usual, for, for all the folks that are attending, if you have questions, put them in the uh, in the YouTube chat. We will get them. We'll get to them accordingly. Um, but Matt, what are we going to talk about today? What's the deal? What's going on? So, well, thank you for having me for a start. Yeah. It's awesome to be here. Um, so uh, we're going to talk a bit about about Kubernetes security. Um, going to like run through some some kind of live exploit stuff, so we can kind of see how. Um, how you can go from uh, a single exploited container uh, right through to to uh, to losing control of the cluster. Okay, with that in mind, though, just for a couple of things regarding the backstory, you've been working with Linux since the '90s. Um, what was your first encounter with security? And you know, in terms of how things have changed over time, we we're talking about how some things have changed significantly over time. If we're talking about content creation, if we're talking about TV series, because Matt worked on some TV series. Um, but regarding cybersecurity, what was your first encounter? You were telling me about some modems that you were working with. What was the first time that you were like, hey, maybe there's something we need to, you know, keep our eyes open? Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, you know, like I was telling you before we started the show, you know, I, I started playing around with uh, with little single floppy Linuxes in probably in, in about 93, 94, because I wanted to share. We'd got one of the first cable modems in the UK and I, and I wanted to share this internet connection with my with my housemates and you know so that kind of blew me away that you could like you know i i i found an old 486 that i i pulled out of a skip and uh stuck this floppy in it and like it was a really it worked you know, and it works and, it, and it's ruining packets <laughs> and you're like well this is fucking black magic you know so like all of a sudden we've got this you know we've got a proper network and like um you know i i think what was what was super interesting when you started to have uh to have um you know, a, a proper IP connections was just looking at what traffic was hitting you from the outside, right? And you, you know, even back then, you just get a lot of exploratory, uh, exploratory um, uh, uh, stuff there. And you know, I mean, I, I've done lots of, of of different roles in terms of uh, in terms of um, open source development over the last twenty years. And you know, so I've run uh, uh, organizations providing. Um, uh, services to large groups of development engineers and so i i then had to kind of go through the the whole thing about uh about um you know kind of uh, getting stuff certified for for uh for particular certifications and um you know i ran a, i ran a public cloud platform for a while so you know the, when you as soon as you you've got public facing uh services on the internet with real customers paying real money for you it sort of sharpens the mind a bit about uh you know about uh the potential for for getting owned um you know so and i, I just found myself over the last few years you know i've obviously been around the container world for a long time I, I was at mesosphere working on mesos and you know before that i was i was in the openstack community for for a long time so kind of been in the cloud world for 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 a lot of years and you know i i found myself going to kubecons and just becoming more and more interested in the security talks yeah. And uh, so when the opportunity came along to, to work for Snake, I was like, 
you know, actually, this is this is super interesting to me. But I mean, I, I think everybody who's in the container world has really noticed over the last two or three years that 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 sort of uh, the focus on on security has become a, a lot keener. Um, you know, I, I, I think when any technology space goes through massive adoption, you know, it kind of starts out a bit like the Wild West. And, you know, yeah. it, it's uh, especially when things are kind of led by developers, these movements that are led by developers like the container space has been. Um, uh, that at some point in that adoption cycle, you know, it, it, you get adoption by 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 big companies and and people start to to really care more about security. But you know, I, I think security is a big topic at, at the minute anyway. I mean, we've seen this week, right? Some more major ransomware attacks. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, we've had so many big data leaks over the last uh, the last few years right which is in, in, in supposedly in places you know that were too big to fail everything was, it was just unthinkable to, to a lot of us i think and, and another thing that we get a lot as well too in 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 this particular space in the kubernetes world is you know the the crypto factor of mining going on through clouds things like that you know that all the major cloud providers have become aware of in, in the last year or so that you know this is very much a thing and that organizations have to keep that in mind Going back to what you're mentioning about security becoming, you know, being more and more of a thing, you know, we, we talk a lot about is it DevOps, is it SRE, et cetera. DevSecOps, is that really only for security people or should that really be something embraced by everyone? Well, I mean, I think the concept of DevSecOps is like, you know, is like the 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 concept of, uh, of DevOps, right? This is, when we look at security in the cloud native space, right, there's two key things for me that are driving why we need to look at security, <laughs> right? So the first thing is, you know, what, like when I first got into into professional computing, right? The aim of of most uh, most computing environments was don't change anything, you know, like as little change as possible. We know where things are. We don't want to change because change introduces uncertainty. And now we want to do the exact opposite of that. We want to change as often as possible because velocity, development velocity, new features, and all that stuff. That's like you know, you're going to live or die on that, right, as, a, as an organization. So we've got that one thing that, you know, we're all about CICD pipelines, we're all about super fast development cycles, so faster and faster iteration. The second thing is that we've gone from, if we look back, you know, a decade, developers were responsible for like, a, a really small part of the stack, just the application, everything else like, you know, your virtual machine, your networks, your LUNs, for those of you who remember those kind of days, it's all done by somebody else, right? And deployment done by somebody else, you know, and what we've seen as we've moved to, to Kubernetes is like the the space that the developers are responsible for is, has grown much more significantly because you really can't separate out your application from the container image, right? When do you ever deploy the app without the container image? N never. never. So you may as well yeah. consider it part of the same thing. And uh, you know, often those container images are being developed by the same team who are developing the app, and they are potentially developing the Kubernetes configuration to go along with that. So all of a sudden, you've got the like developers own, you know, most of the stack in terms of of getting that application to to deployment. So. That kind of changes the game from a security perspective because what we can't think of things anymore like in the old way of security where we had this big step at the at the end where like before something gets deployed it goes to be audited or any of that stuff yeah. right so DevSecOps is really about that we build um, security all into the software development lifecycle all the way through the 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 uh, the process so you know we give developers tools to be able to um, both understand, but most importantly, action security stuff right at the place where they're working. So IDEs in, in the CLI, we build it into source code management, we build it into our container registries, we build it into our CICD pipelines. And so we have security as this sort of um, developer-first uh, integrated thing that is built into software so that you know we, we as we develop our software we're doing security all the time and that, i guess that's what the sort of the idea of devsecops is that we kind of merge security into development and operations in exactly the same way that we merge development and operations together you know over the last decade so that's the kind point. of idea i think it's a great point like you said that the role of the developer has changed and you've seen those changes over time that 
uh, about how, you know, what does it really mean to be full stack? And we can say that, you know, security is perhaps the added ingredient that might sometimes yeah. be forgotten there. And then when we're talking about Kubernetes, but sometimes we're like, oh, this is a day one, day two, et cetera, et cetera. Let's talk about day zero or even day minus one. We've had, you know, uh, Jim Bugwadia from, from Nirmada on here talking about Kiverno. We've also had different conversations about uh, open policy agent. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there are different, uh, you know, initiatives, open source projects that are out there to make people more aware and more conscious of this stuff so that it doesn't become something that this is only something we're going to add to our culture if it becomes a problem. You know, if the price tag is big enough, then that's when it's going to become an issue. But it's really, and also, you know, it's not about, you know, cutting developers' wings. It's about putting the necessary guardrails so that they're working in the environment that they need to be working in and not something where there are too many what ifs. What yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah. you, start, you see developers that really care about this stuff a lot more than, you know, than they used to as well. I mean, we did some survey work just recently where, you know, we were asking developers from a whole range of organizations, like how they felt about um, security. And they were like, you know, uh, super focused on it. I, I think, you know, we, we kind of uh, we need to give developers their, their props for, for really, you know, starting to think much more about these things. Uh, and, you know, I mean... It, the because we have to consider it as one holistic thing as well right because you know we we also talked a little bit about some of the recent you know some of the recent uh things that have gone on in the world of ransomware and yeah. you know, um uh you, you were mentioning cryptocurrency mining and things like that you know these things are all uh, almost always a combination of a vulnerability in an application that gets you in the door and then um uh, infrastructure misconfiguration which allows you mm -hmm. to expand the blast radius you know, if we look at all the major hacks, there have been the major data loss stuff. It, it's all the same pattern. What they all have in common are those two factors. We would say. So those yeah. two factors, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of which, isn't that what we're going to see today? Yeah, we'll get. We're, uh, I'll talk you through a a uh, a kind of uh, slightly um, mythologized kind of. Ooh, I like mythology. I'm a big fan. <laughs> you got you have an eager yeah. audience here. Yeah, cool. With that in mind, too. I mean, without getting into too many details. About about sneak. What is it that about their approach to security that you think is different, perhaps than other than other companies that are out there? We talk about some companies that you know that are Kubernetes native. You also, well, coming from the Mesos period, have seen the development of these things. That, you know, in uh, over time. So, what what do you think makes that unique in your current role? So, I mean, sneak are really all about this developer first idea. You know, we start up from from. Um, the product development perspective with the developer in mind and you know our 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 first kind of major um uh, uh product was around um uh, uh open source package uh, management so looking at vulnerabilities in packages you're including in your application and you know again that's something that's really targeted at, at developers because so giving developers those insights into like what what are you including here you know what are, because this thing might might have vulnerabilities in it but also this thing's going to bring in these other 50 things that also might have vulnerabilities in them and you know we've now we now do you know container image scanning we do um code scanning we do um we do the whole the whole range of, of stuff right up to to production deployment but it's all the thing that ties it together is all this developer first thing that's really where where sneak um where the sneak journey started and you can listen to lots of talks that guy pajani who's our founder has given you know on the internet um where he he talks about this uh, very eloquently about this this idea of developer first and um but also about um you know, actionable stuff, because a lot of security comes from that thing of like, oh, here's this massive list of CVEs. And, you know, if you're a developer, you're like, well, how do I make sense of that? Right. I mean, we've all seen it. I mean, when I was in when I was a sysadmin, you know, it was hard enough to 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 get your head around what all these different things were and, and what these vulnerabilities meant. And it's 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 not really possible for you to you know, have a deep understanding of all these vulnerabilities in all of these things and then make choices about that. So you need tools that are going to give you actionable insights. So they're going to be saying, you know, um, here's how you fix this, you know, and, and uh, you know, quite often 
you know, you might not even really need to understand what all these vulnerabilities mean, right? Because if you can score them and prioritize them in a, in the appropriate way and, you know, have ways that you can automatically fix them, then, you know, so, I mean, say there's something that's, that's uh, a high severity vulnerability and it's got a fix available. Well, that's pretty much a no brainer. Just apply the fix, right? You don't even need to care about what's in that, what's yeah. in what that vulnerability is. And, and so we do things like automated fixed PRs where we'll integrate with source code management, raise PRs automatically against, um, you know, against dependencies that you've included in that are the same for Docker files, right? Mm -hmm. If your if your base image has, you know, 700 vulnerabilities in it, upgrade the base image, right? Here's another one. You're going to get 50 vulnerabilities in it. And so it's, it's really about this, this, uh, these, um, uh, actionable insights and and making that friction free for developers. Very very good. Well, the main thing here is putting the developer at the center. I mean, I think yeah, that's, that's, exactly. that's quite clear. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think that's really good. So that it's you know it's empathy based because I think too often security gets a bad reputation for like oh it's the FBI that's coming to audit like you said auditing yeah, yeah. these kind of old school heavy duty paperwork sort of procedures that which is once again why of course we're going to put that off you know, to the very end because yeah. nobody wants to do it. But rather than, than that, it's like, hey, let's have a dialogue about this. Let's see what's going on here. And let's see, like, like you said, vulnerabilities and misconfigurations. I think it's a great thing about the two factors. Yeah. That being said, let's jump into your mythological presentation. I'm very cool. excited. Cool. Let's, uh, let's uh, get this on the go. Just bear with me one second. Not, not a problem at all. I will also ask later about cybersecurity films and TV series that you might recommend. I watched War Games with Matthew Broderick. Uh, not too long. One of my favorite films of all. <laughs> I should say rewatched, rewatched, but, um, but it's a great, it's a great film. Okay, um, right, let's go. Hopefully, uh, we might move some windows around here and make things a bit bigger and smaller as we go on. But let's uh, let's kick okay. off. So this is me, um, like a, 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 in this fine intro, Matt Jarvis. I'm a senior developer advocate at Sneak. And I've been building stuff with open source for a pretty long time, and I've worked, you know, in ops, in in development, and uh, and and uh, now in in security. So, um, like I said a minute ago, almost all um, impactful exploits in the real world are a combination of application vulnerability, giving you an initial. Um, an initial opening together with uh, with system level misconfiguration, um, allowing the blast radius of that uh, exploit to spread. And in today's um, kind of session, we're going to look at uh, how this can play out in a fictional scenario in the context of a of a Kubernetes cluster. So where we're going to start is that um, we have a mocked up um, uh, application um, uh, remote. Re with a remote command execution vulnerability. This is clearly a mock-up for the purposes of this, of this demo, but there are lots of these in the real world and uh, that allow you to execute commands remotely on a machine. I was looking at uh, one uh, around uh, uh, Tomcat the other day that lets you do um, uh, very similar uh, uh, things to this. But for the purpose of, of this demo, this is a, uh, a mock-up. So um, where we're gonna start is that um, I'm going to go through, you know, what, where are we now? What do we know to start with? So all we know is that we've got this, uh, this vulnerable web application that we found um, on the internet and it's exposed on, on port 80, you know, and we've, we've connected to that. Um, and let's also introduce our timeline of doom. So this is going to show um, where we've got to in terms of, uh, 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 of our exploit. Um, so what can we do from here? So the first thing that we uh, that we might do um, is that um, uh, we know that uh, that when applications are running in containers, oh, we can often get interesting uh, information from our environment variables. So again, my mocked up application here is going to let me run um, is going to let me run uh, uh, arbitrary commands. So let's just uh, get that link. So what I'm going to do here is, is to start with, I'm going to look at what environment variables there are running in this application. And this has told us lots of interesting information. Clearly, we are running in a Kubernetes cluster. We can see lots of references to Kubernetes. Uh, we can see um, an internal address of the, uh, the API server. Um, and we can see that, uh, that um, 
we can assume that the the, the pod uh, running our, our application is exposing um, this port on a service um, at, uh, at port 5000 that's then being ingressed somehow um, in, into our Kubernetes cluster. So we can update our timeline of doom and add that we know we're running in a Kubernetes cluster, we know we're running in a pod, we know we have this service on port 5000, and we know the internal API of the, uh, of the API server. So let's see what we can find out um, about the, uh, the network at this point. So what I'm gonna do here is run IPA. And so we can see that uh, we've got the IP address of the, of the pod. Um, so we're gonna make a note of that because that's gonna be interesting for us a little bit later um, in this demo. So we know what IP range our, our container is running in. So if we go back to here, we can add that we know uh, our IP address. So let's have a look what else we can do. So by default, um, every pod in a Kubernetes cluster has a service token auto-mounted in it. Um, and this is associated with the service account that was used to create the pod. Um, you can control this on the service account or pod level using um, auto mount service token, uh, service account token equals false. But, you know, in lots of clusters, this is, is, is not the case. So let's see what, uh, whether we've got a, a token here. So you can see where we've looked for this token. This is where it's auto mounted and we can see we've actually got a token. So if we update our timeline of doom here, we can see that the next thing that, that we've been able to do is access some credentials. We've accessed this pod token, it's available inside our pod. And so um, it's worth noting that uh, the, the first two um, stages of this, uh, of this exploit, we could also have done if this was a, just a directory traversal vulnerability where we might be able to escape out of the, the, um, the folder that our, our application is being uh, served from, because we can also access all of the, these uh, environment variables by catting uh, this, this, um, this uh, file from the prop file system. So um, let's see what we can what we can get from the uh, internal API server uh, using that token that we just found. So um, what we're going to do here is is connect from our internal IP address of the pod to the internal uh, IP of the API server, and we'll again do that using our a vulnerability here. So we can see we've, we're using curl here. I'm going to take that token and we're going to take the CA cert that's associated with that token. Um, and we're going to look at the internal, uh, the internal um, uh, API and we're going to try and access this endpoints API. And so we can see we've had a response from that. And in the real world, this is a, a cluster that's just running on my laptop. But in the real world, this would give us the external IP of the API server, which again is going to be uh, very useful to us. And um, so uh, because we're running in kind, I already know what the what the IP is of the uh, 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 of the API server. Um, but this is in itself is a vulnerability because we've, we've allowed that token to access um, the endpoints API. So I've been able to discover more things about the cluster um, from the uh, from the API server itself. So what well, now that I've got actually got a token, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this token and um, I'm going to now configure my local um, kubectl to use this token along with that external um, IP address of the API server. Um, I've actually got a, a, a handy little script that will hopefully do this for me, um, but you could do this you could do this manually. So I know that my API server is going to be uh, here. So let's uh, make sure that is actually set. Okay, so the first thing that I'm, I'm now using this uh, this the the token that I uh, that I discovered there, and we can see that the the first thing I've tried to do here is to um, do kubectl get pods. I've got a, a, a shortcut set up here, but it's basically this command. 
And so we can see in the default namespace, I haven't been able to access anything with this, uh, with this token. But what, what's interesting is that it's given us a bit more information. It showed me that that token is namespaced to this secure namespace. So what I, let's have a look and see whether in that namespace I can actually do something. So we've seen that I can actually get the, the pods that are running in this secure namespace using this token. And there actually is only one pod here. So we can make an assumption that, that um, this pod um, here is the, uh, the pod running that, um, that vulnerable uh, application. So let's see what permissions we've got um, in that namespace. And there's a couple of different ways that we can explore um, those permissions. Let's just make a bit of space here. So I can do kubectl auth um, can I minus minus list minus minus token equals uh, my uh, token. And this is in the default namespace. I didn't specify the secure namespace. So we can see that we don't actually have uh, many permissions at all in this default namespace. But if I now um, namespace that to my secure namespace, we can see that I have a bunch of, of uh, permissions here on a whole set of resources. So I've got much more um, available permissions within this secure namespace than I do in the default namespace. Oh, Matt, real quick, we got a question. Um, yep. As a developer, someone asking, um, as a developer, I included some packages to my application. At some point of time, a security tool detected a package that contains some infected files and vulnerabilities. How can I replace those once they are uh, infected? Uh, so, well, I mean, in the container world, that would be a case of, uh, of change whatever your included uh, dependency was um, uh, to an upgraded version. You know, most scanners, including Sneak, will tell you uh, which, which package version to upgrade to to get rid of that vulnerability and then rebuild and redeploy you know, kill all of your running instances of that app that are running in your cluster and then deploy new ones. You know, that's the that's the typical pattern in the container world. Okay, and then the follow-up to that is, how can I go fast with more vulnerabilities ahead while using uh, a DevOps environment? Uh, you'll have to repeat that question. But yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, I'm not sure if it's entirely worded as they wanted it to, but I think you probably answered it with the first question anyway. So anyway, just continue. Cool. Okay, we'll come back to that if yeah. uh, if you want to clarify that a bit later. So the other tool that uh, that we can use to look at our our permissions is is this uh, this kubectl plugin um, access matrix, and I have this installed in in my kubectl. And if we look at that default namespace again, you know we can see I've hardly got any permissions in here, but if I look at the at the secure namespace. We can see I've got lots of permissions to do lots of things there. So if we go back to our our um, our uh, slides here, so what do we now know? We've we found the external IP of, of the API server, and we know we've got these two namespaces. At the minute, we only know what's going on in the secure one. Uh, we know there is a default namespace. We don't know if there's anything running in it at the minute, um, and. Um, we've really got an insecure role here. That's what we've discovered. Um, this is a, a fairly typical pattern when people think that um, namespaces are actually a security boundary. So um, you might make an assumption that I'll deploy my application into its own namespace and I'll let the service account inside that namespace um, do whatever it wants in that in that namespace. And you know that's probably a uh, uh, it's not a very good um, uh, decision from a um, from a security perspective, and namespaces aren't really um, security boundaries. So that's kind of what we've uh, where we've got up to. So as we can see, we can add that to our timeline of doom that our role gives that service account too many permissions in the in the namespace. So let's go back to our um, the pod that we know about, which is uh, in our secure namespace. So. Let's now try and get a, a shell on this uh, on this pod. So if I just copy that bit, and we can do kubectl exec it uh, our pod. Um, it's in the secure namespace, and we're going to try and execute um, a bash shell. Right. So we've managed to get a shell on this pod now. So 
Um, this is if we look at the pod. So actually, you know, this isn't I'm not running as root. So that's good. Right. I, I've got a this web admin user that's running my application, which seems to be the, the vulnerable application that, that we exploited. Um, let's try and see if we can uh, if we can um, uh, raise our privileges and, and become root. And so we haven't even got sudo in this container. So, you know, from a security perspective, you might think, well, that's that's great. You know, I'm not giving anybody the opportunity to expand their, their privileges. So even if this is exploited, they're restricted in what they can do. Um, let's just try one more thing and see if we can create a file. So we can actually create a file there. And what that means is that potentially at this point, I could start downloading software into this container. I could change the configuration. I've already worked out that we have curl available, so that's definitely possible. And this is another vulnerability here, and this is caused by us not setting um, read-only root file system to true. And so if we, if we allow um, the container to be read-write, um, like I said, it's going to allow an attacker to modify the container. And the way we protect against this is to configure the security context setting of our container. And we want to set read-only root file system equals true. There are not many um, real production um, uh, situations where you do want to have things writing into your container. You know, if you need to store data, you've got external data stores for that. If you need to do logging, you've got, you know, distributed log systems for that. So, um, you know, it's, it's good practice to have, um, to have your containers uh, in production um, set to, uh, to read only. So we're not actually going to, to exploit that particular vulnerability at the minute. So let's come out of that container and we're gonna try a few more things to see what we can do. So um, let's try and spawn a, a, a pod running as root. And so if we, uh, I've got some, some YAML here that we can, uh, we can test out. So here I've got some YAML that's just gonna try and spawn a root pod. This is an Alpine container. It by default will run as root. So let's see if we can um, if we can uh, run that um, YAML and spawn a, a root pod in this um, in this particular um, environment. So let's try and do that in the secure namespace. So that looks like it's it's done something. But when we if we look at that namespace, we can see that actually we've got this create container config error when we tried to spawn this uh, this root pod. So. Let's have a look what uh, what's actually caused that. And if we do uh, k describe um, pod uh, root pod in the secure namespace, so we can see that um, the uh, that we've got some kind of policy here that is is failing that from the kubelet. So um, we are we are not being allowed to run as root. There's something being set there that says we must be non-root, and that's probably a pod security policy. And because we've tried to run um, a container that's going to run as root by default, this has kind of blocked us from deploying as, as root. So let's try something, um, something different here. Um, if we uh, look at a different um, uh, YAML here, we're gonna run a, a non-root container, but we're gonna um, try to see whether we can run with privileged is tr equals true. And privilege equals true is obviously, that's kind of superpowers that gives us lots of, of things that we can do in terms of, uh, of mounting things on the host and, and all sorts of things. So um, let's, let's just see whether, th whether that's going to work. So let's have demo YAMLs, uh, non-root privileged uh, in the secure namespace. Right, so here we've got we failed straight away here because um, and and our our intuition was correct that we have a pod security policy in place here that is um, not letting me run privileged containers. So it's not letting me run root containers and it's not letting me run um, privileged containers. So if we go back to our slides, we've learned some some new things about our environment here. So we've learned that there's a pod security in policy in place on this. Um, secure namespace. And, but does that stop us from extending our exploit? So let's try um, something different here. So I'm now going to try um, uh, running a non-privileged, uh, non-root container. 
Um, this is an image that I built, so it's going to pull from from um, the internet. And um, I have a, uh, some tools in this image that, that might be useful to me, but I'm not going to try and run it as root. I'm not going to try and run it privileged. So let's just uh, apply this one and see what happens uh, in the secure namespace. So at this point, this looks very much like my um, pod is deploying. And we can see here that the container is creating. This is going to take uh, a few seconds to, to deploy because it's, it's pulling this, uh, this container image. But um, we've, what we've also learned here is that this cluster is not restricting me from pulling images from external repositories, which is a, another vulnerability um, because we can potentially pull things down from any repository that, that we, might, we might choose. So my pod is now uh, running here, my sneaky pod. And in my sneaky pod, um, I know that I have a, uh, a remote TTY um, uh, um, program running. So, uh, and I know that that's running on port 8080. Um, so I'm going to uh, port forward from uh, my kubectl uh, on my local machine. I'm gonna port forward to this pod on port 8080. And what I can do now is um, I can go on my local machine and go to port 8080. And now I have a terminal again on my pod. And I, I mean, I could have connected to this pod uh, via kubectl, but again, this is showing the things, the different things, different approaches that you can use in terms of, of getting access to containers. So if I run who am I here, we can see I'm non-root, I'm this sneaky user. Um, but interestingly, let's see what happens if I do um, sudo sue and try to raise my privileges to root. And so I've been able in this, in this pod without running privilege, without running root to escalate my privileges to root. And the problem here is that the pod security policy um, does not um, allow, uh, hasn't disallowed privilege escalation. And I've seen a lot of um, misleading documentation about this allow privilege escalation um, a setting that, oh, well, if you've got, uh, got non-root set and you um, don't allow privileged uh, containers, then it, this is um, redundant, but it's actually not. And I'll show you why in a second, but we can see in the pod security policy um, here that we've got this privileged false flag, we've got the must run as non-root. So the, the policy itself has been well thought out in terms of some of these things, but they've missed this allow privilege escalation equals false. And let's have a look at why that might be important. So if I go back to my normal user here, and um, let's just do if config and, and get some information about the network. So we can see what, what the IP address is of this particular pod. So um, what I'm gonna try and do is to, um, uh, uh, to try and map um, some of this network uh, as my own user here. Um, and I'm going to use the nmap tool, which was I included in this image, um, pn minus minus open uh, 10.244.1.12 slash uh, 24 and straight away if i'm non-root this fails because it requires um uh kernel level capabilities that are not included in this uh in this uh, as a normal user but if i um if i sudo uh here uh, hopefully i should be able to copy and paste that so now as a root user because i've been able to escalate my privileges i've been able to scan the network so um, and what I've discovered here is that, so uh, we know that our original, um, the original host that we exploited um, was on uh, 10.244.1.9 because we had the IP address when we looked at the exploited application to start with. But what I've discovered here is another uh, machine that we didn't know anything about 10.244.1.10, which also has port 5000 open. Now, this is interesting to us. We had an exploit. We had an exploitable container that was running on port 5000 that was our initial um, into the cluster. So we've now discovered another host. 
So if we go back to our, our slides again, so we discovered that the, the pod security policy didn't disallow privilege escalation, that allowed us to, um, to, uh, um, to escalate to root, and that allowed us to then map the, some of the network. So what do we now know? Um, we now know that we have a, a, a machine somewhere that we've got an IP address for it. We don't know what namespace it's in, but we know it's on port 5000. So, um, and the, the other thing that we know here in our timeline of doom is that there were no network controls in place. So I was allowed to go from that pod that I, I launched myself, I was allowed to um, start scanning the network uh, to be able to discover other things that were on the network. So uh, let's um, go back to our, our uh, compromise pod. So the next thing I'm gonna do, because um, we, uh, we discovered this machine on 10.244.1.10, on, on um, I'm going to use uh, SOCAT here to set up a tunnel from my um, sneaky pod to this other pod that we've just discovered. So we're going to do, uh, we're gonna listen on port 5001 uh, we need reuse, adro, we need fork, and we're going to make a connection to uh, 10.244.1.10 uh, on port 5000. Let's just background that. Oh, uh, I've done that. Uh, oh, I've got a space that shouldn't be there. Okay, there we go. Hopefully that's going to work. Yeah, we've only got one running. That's great. Right, so now uh, let's come out of this pod and we're going to stop port forwarding to our sneaky pod. And instead, I'm going to port forward to this new port that we just set up that encrypted tunnel on, uh, port 5001. So um, now what we can do is, um, if we go back to here and we go to localhost 5001, we discover that we've actually got another instance of that same vulnerable application. So um, we, we've obviously explored this application a little bit before. So let's have a look whether we've got a token um, <laughs> in this new um, application that we just discovered. And we do, we have another token. So um, let's see, let's switch over our tokens now in our um, kubectl config and see what we can do with this new token. So if I um, just, uh, let's have a look here. Let's just manually change my, um, let's just comment out this one. So we've changed over our tokens. I'm just going to make sure that I have got that I'm using that new kube config. So now let's try doing kubectl get pods. So this new token has given me permissions in the default namespace. So we'll remember that when we looked at when we tried to run this command before, we had no permissions to look into this namespace. So we've been able to access this default namespace. Again, we can assume that this is this web admin is the is the um, application that we've just exploited, and <clears throat> again we can look, uh, put, we can um, check what permissions we actually have here using uh, kauth can I kubectl auth can I, and so we now see that in the default namespace we've got a whole bunch of permissions that we didn't have before. So we've been able to. Um, to expand the scope of our of our attack, and we now know that here's where we we set up our encrypted tunnel from five thousand and one to port five thousand, and we now know that this application actually lives in the default namespace. So um, let's um, uh, now try and create a, a privilege pod in this namespace. So kubectl apply minus f. Uh, demo YAMLs uh, non-root privileged. And in this namespace, um, it appears that um, I have the permissions to be able to create privileged pods here. Um, so 
Uh, this namespace is clearly not restricted by that same pod security policy that we saw in the secure namespace. And with a privileged pod, we can actually do a lot more. So if we look at the, at the YAML that I uh, spawned that privileged pod with, what I've done here is actually mount the host, um, the host uh, root file system inside my container. <clears throat> we'll see why, what, what I can do with that in a second. But um, if we now get a shell on uh, this um, host again, so we want to do kubectl exec it uh, bin bash. So we've now got a shell on our on our new pod running in the default namespace. Oh no, we don't want that one. Sorry, um, uh, it needs to be. It wants to be our privileged pod that we've just uh, launched. Non-root priv. So we are we are now on our um, uh, uh, privileged pod. So let's escalate to root, which we know we can do. And so at this point, when I run the PS command and look at the processes available, what I'm seeing is the process table that's that's actually inside the container. Um, so I'm only seeing the uh, the processes that that we would uh, that are running containerized. But because I've got the host file system mounted here, I can use the true command, and I now have um, the host file system mounted as slash. So when I look at the process table, I'm seeing all the processes on the host. So we can see here all the container D processes that are running on the host that, uh, that is running all those containers, including the kubelet, um, container D, core DNS, all these other things that are running um, in the cluster. So effectively at this stage, we've owned the, uh, the node. So um, as I've showed in this slide, we've, we've launched this privileged pod. We've been able to, to work out that, that uh, to, to access the host from here. And the, the, the problem was that the pod security policies that were in place on that secure namespace were not in place on the, on the default namespace. So let's see what else we can do from here. Um, export, uh, we're now on the, on the host file system, remember. So what we can do here is, is actually access the, uh, the um, config of the kubelet, including the token that, that the kubelet is using. And um, handily, I uh, have kubectl left in the in the host. So using the kubelets token, I can now um, look and see the pods that are running in kube system, i.e. in the um, in the uh, excuse me, sorry about that. Um, they're running in kube system, which is the um, the uh, cluster uh, namespace where all of the cluster um, control plane and things are all running. And we can also use that kubelet token to get the names of the nodes that are used, that are hosted in this cluster. And this is gonna be important to us in a second. So at this point, probably you've really owned the cluster because you've, you've got access to the node. But um, for the purposes of this demo, we'll go a little bit further in a different direction. Um, let's explore whether we can actually run pods, uh, launch pods using the kubelet token. So from the node, um, so I'm going to just try and run a busy box pod here from the node. And as we can see, we can't, that token actually isn't allowed to launch pods directly on, on nodes. Um, it is possible to, uh, to launch um, a different attack here by, um, uh, if we were to um, uh, put YAML into um, etc. cetera, uh, Kubernetes manifests on the nodes, uh, there's nothing in that folder at the minute, but you can actually get the node to automatically launch pods. So that would be another angle of attack, another attack vector potentially against the control plane that we could um, that we could uh, that we could attack from that um, that uh, thing. But because we've escaped the the pod security policy and we know the name of the nodes, um, we're going to actually um, attack on a on a slightly different uh, vector at this point. So we're going to um, uh, launch a pod to the node that's hosting um, the uh, etcd cluster. And uh, so let's come out of, out of this one. And let's um, uh, demo YAML's uh, etcd client.yaml. So what we're going to do here is we're going to launch an etcd client pod, and we're going to launch it 
um, to the node that's running etcd. So we know because we've been able to, we had the kubelet token, we can find the nodes, we can find the pods that are running in the um, in the kube system namespace. We're going to launch this uh, onto the node that's running etcd. Um, we also, we know where the etcd configuration should be. So we're going to set some environment variables to configure this etcd client to join the etcd cluster um, directly from the uh, from the node. Um, and we're going to mount the, uh, the etcd configuration. We know we can mount things on the host now in this default namespace. So let's go ahead and, um, and actually uh, run that YAML. And if we look at Kubernetes get pods here, we can see our etcd client pod is now starting. Um, that's going to take a, uh, a second or two to get running. So that's now running. So now um, let's just check whether um, we've managed to connect to the etcd cluster. And I'm going to exec um, a shell inside that uh, inside that pod, and we're going to run etcd cuttle member list, and we can see we're getting output here from showing us the members of that etcd cluster. So we've been able to connect to the etcd cluster. So um, if we look and uh, back to our diagram and see what's happened here, so we've we've launched um, we've launched uh, an etcd um, pod and uh, connected to the etcd cluster. And we've uh, we've connected into that that pod that's running in the uh, the etcd uh, cluster is running in the kube system namespace. So now etcd contains a lot of interesting information about a uh, about a Kubernetes cluster, um, uh, not least of which is secrets. So um, let's see whether with our etcd client here we can actually access secrets from the etcd cluster on our Kubernetes um, cluster, and we can. And one secret in particular that we're very interested in is this cluster role aggregation controller token. And that token um, has um, cluster admin rights. It has the rights to change permissions for um, users in the cluster. So let's see if we can, uh, if we can get that token. Um, what's the string on the end is uh, W-W5. Uh, GBH, and this has given us another token. So if we now take this token, which is this cluster role aggregation controller uh, token, and we run that through kubectl.auth uh, uh, can I minus minus list minus minus token equals token, and as we expected, we have um, update permissions here on the cluster roles in the cluster. So really at this point, um, we've reached the, the end of our timeline of doom because we now have a token that has rights to change um, permissions on, uh, on accounts in the cluster. And it's kind of game over at this stage. Um, we can pretty much do what we want. We can change uh, different, we could change the permissions on different tokens. And, uh, and we can pretty much do whatever we like. So um, how could we have, have prevented this? Well, obviously, um, clearly our first port of call was not to have that, uh, that vulnerable application running to start with. And so scanning your um, application code, as we had that question right at the start about dependencies in your application code, um, uh, 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 giving vulnerabilities like this, this is clearly a slightly extreme one in the sense that it's a remote command execution vulnerability, but lots of these exist in the wild. If you're not scanning your application code and making sure those vulnerabilities aren't getting into your applications, then you've given an attacker that opening to be able to get in there and exploit the blast radius. The other thing I was able to do was to uh, take advantage of small misconfigurations in your Kubernetes YAML um, in order to expand the things that I wanted to do. So. Um, the way that we we uh, we prevent this is by scanning that that YAML file, those YAML files before you deploy them to production, so that you can um, identify uh, potential security issues that are in there when you're setting your cluster up and when you're deploying your applications. And then the third thing is, <coughs> excuse me, is to scan your container images. 
Um, clearly, if, I, if I'd have scanned that, that vulnerable web application, the image before it was being deployed, then I would have been able to pick that up. And you can do all three of these things um, using tools like Snake. Um, obviously, other security tools are available as well. So um, I, I have to give massive props to, to, uh, to um, some other folks in the Kubernetes security community. This talk was heavily influenced by um, Mark Manning, Ian Coldwater, uh, Duffy Cooley, and, and to lots of others in the uh, Kubernetes security community. So um, I hope that was interesting to folks. And uh, I, you know, I think I think we can all agree it was. We got a, we got quite a few different questions. So first question is from Sarie. Um, as always, thank you, Sarie, for the wonderful question. I feel that asking a developer to write a secure pod spec is too much configurations and knowledge. What is the best practice to enforce pod spec uh, security configurations without requiring the developers to set them? Uh, so, I mean, there's a, there's a number of ways that you can do that. And um, what's, what's some uh, open policy agent uh, and combined with things like Gatekeeper would be a, yeah. a great place to start. Um, and, and what OPA and, and Gatekeeper will do will actually um, uh, stop things from getting in if they don't have that policy created. You can also use things like webhooks, mutating webhooks to be able to actually add those things into um, into any pod spec that, that gets uh, launched on your cluster. And some folks um, have workflows where those things are added in as part of your build process, for example. You can have some automation steps. Perhaps you, you, um, you give your developers a, a smaller subset of things that they need to set. And then as part of your build process, you have um, other things that are added to those Kubernetes YAML, you know, that, are, that, that, that sort of fill, fill them out uh, as it's going through CI. So yes, there are lots of options there about different ways to do that. And I absolutely agree that, that a lot of the things in, um, in, uh, in security context can be, it's a little bit of a, uh, of a black art about understanding what some of them do. Yeah, um, I, I recently wrote a, uh, a blog post about uh, security context, and uh, the documentation was was really quite poor on some of them as well. I ended up having to go digging through the API spec to actually try and work out what some of those things do. Yeah, I think it's it, it's not often that I hear someone say the documentation is too good on this one or too complete. <laughs> no, I mean, context is definitely complaint. one of the places where it's easy to get confused. Yeah, as a follow up to that, because he mentions it as, as you touched on, like using the admission controller or and mutating the hook, but isn't that too much work to set up? But I think that you kind of address that. And then the, the second thing is, is, you know, couldn't there be something that's just secure out of the box? I think it's kind of what you were touching on with, you know, OPA and Gatekeeper, but maybe something a little bit further from that? Uh, so in, in what kind of sense? I mean, what in an at an application level or? Yeah. I mean, so you can you could definitely make choices about your your um, your cluster deployments, right? I mean, at the end of the day, um, I, I'm usually working with, with vanilla upstream Kubernetes, right? And vanilla upstream Kubernetes is really about giving you as many options as possible, right? It's an incredibly powerful um, tool, but by default, it's not gonna give you loads of guardrails because it's not designed to do that. It's designed for you to be able to make choices. So there are, you know, resource limits aren't set by default. Well, that'll straight away let someone give DDoS your cluster, right? Because a pod, the Kubelet can ask, uh, a pod can ask for as much resources as it wants until the Kubelet runs out of resources. And you know, Kubernetes that's not a that's not a a bug. Like it's a design feature. It's designed to be a very general purpose. If you look at things like Red Hat OpenShift, lots of these things are built into OpenShift, you yeah, know, yeah. because OpenShift is designed much more as a path layer. And so, you know, some of these things in terms of security, um, OpenShift will give you by default, as will other other um, providers, you know, other and, and, you know, it, Of course, there are other options, but it is true that very frequently in conversations, you know, the words out of the box and OpenShift frequently seem to go together. Another question, uh, and this may be a little bit a little bit tricky. In your professional opinion, if a if a company is uh, you know suffering from from ransomware, in all in every circumstance, do you think it's it, that they should pay, or that there are some circumstances where they say, nope, not paying? That's a very difficult question to answer, isn't it? I, mean, I imagine we probably just spend an entire meetup on that. You know what? Maybe that's that's the perfect yeah, excuse to I mean, think about a panel in the future. That's okay. That's okay. Um, let, let's let's take a different one. No, this one is actually interesting too because you having you know been working with Linux and then moving into the security space also because all the names that you touched on, you know Ian Coldwater, Duffy, etc. 
cloud native community and the hacker community, what similarities and differences would you say uh, there are between the two? I mean, I've been in, I've been a part of a lot of different open source communities over the last over the last twenty years, right? I mean, you yeah. know, clearly there are there's always differences between different communities. I, I think the Kubernetes community, particularly as it's grown, has has uh, has definitely um, become uh, very open towards um, new folks and and folks joining. I mean, I know you know in the in the Kubernetes security uh, and the CNCF community uh, security community, you know, is very welcoming to to folks joining. I mean, you know, I I think the days of uh, of uh, some of the older open source communities have extremely um, uh, had a high, extremely high level of technical expectation and and sometimes some some behaviors that probably in the modern world might not be appropriate um, but you know such as <laughs> well I mean you know there's been lots of controversy around the around the Linux the Linux kernel community over the years you know yeah um, but uh, I mean, you know, their communities are trying to achieve very different things, right? That's I mean, true. I, I think it's it's always um, when you get very very large open source communities, and we've really only had this probably three times in in my lifetime, right? Linux kernel, OpenStack, Kubernetes. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest challenges is how do you how do you how do you make it feel like an opening uh, an open and inclusive environment that people want to contribute to and how do you grow people's contribution from just being end user consumers through to uh you know potentially being community contributors and you know i i think in the in the cloud native um space we've done a pretty good job so far of of being able to grow that community and uh there are new folks joining all the time um and so uh, yeah, I think things are things are, are working pretty well from that perspective. You know, you can always um, improve in terms of inclusivity and and uh, and getting new folks into the community. But um, yeah, I, I, I think. Uh, I'm sorry, I've gone around the house. No, no, no. no, no, no like you said, it's, it's a question but... of it's a question of objectives, and and that's going to sort of condition the, the kind of environment yeah. and and how folks are going to interact. One other question that we had here as a follow up, because you know we do interact a lot with the CNCF uh, students group. And I think, you know, like I said, I don't think it, it's ever too early to get uh, security into the into the equation um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to learning. Are there any resources that you recommend for beginners that are starting out with Kubernetes regarding security? Yeah, so I mean, the the uh, the 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 output from from folks like the like CNCF SIG security is has been really good in terms of uh, uh, the the white paper on cloud native security was really comprehensive in terms of uh, identifying all of the things that you need to think about in and how cloud native security differs from you know the previous generations of security. So I think that's a great place to start. Um, I think getting involved with with both um, the 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 Kubernetes SIG security and CNCF SIG security are both super welcoming, open communities, yeah. and there are lots of, of folks far cleverer than I am. Um, and but the, I think it's a great place actually to be if you want to to contribute because um, there are lots of opportunities to contribute that aren't necessarily focused on contributing code. And you know I, I know there there are a lot of people who who want to get more involved but don't know where to start and maybe you know they they don't necessarily feel confident enough to be to be jumping straight into contributing code to a project. So. The, um, the security community has has lots of opportunities for uh, folks to become uh, non-code contributors in terms of contributing to writing or. or oh no, that's the thing because a lot of times when when first timers are coming to us, they say like, "Hey, uh, what are the prerequisites?" It's like the only requirement is to be a, nice, be a nice person and yeah, show up. Enough, like that's it. Like nice. you yeah. don't need to do yeah. anything else as long as you have a smile and you're positive. Like that is it. Like yeah, you can yeah. you can spend years just going to SIG meetings and listening and meeting yeah. people and asking questions and that's more than enough. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a really good point. Is that both on the CNCF side as well as the Kubernetes side, um, tons of opportunities there. Jump into a uh, to a SIG, get in the Slack, start asking questions. Um, we are pretty much out of time, Matt, but we have a uh, a tradition in our in our community that every time we have a meetup, while we are talking, there is a a secret. Uh, hidden 
actor in all of this. Uh, let me make sure that I got what I need. There we go. Um, let me go back to Zoom. I'm gonna share my screen. And we have an, a, an artistic hacker. Um, his name is Angel. And so let me know when you can see my screen. Um, so while, while you were explaining all this uh, wonderful information about vulnerabilities, Anka was creating an artistic rendition of, of some of the different things that were mentioned. Obviously, there was a lot of stuff that was there. And one of the key things, one of the key takeaways as well was in the very beginning, talking about the, you know, the issue of vulnerabilities and then misconfigurations and in infrastructure. I think you could probably write a book about that. Um, but, uh, but anyway, I, I think it looks nice. I like the pirate motif as well. Yeah, that's great. And, uh, anyway, like I said, there's, there's, we didn't get to talk about war games. We didn't get to talk about your record. No. Collection. Can I ask what kind of, I mean, I'm sure you listen to a little bit of everything, but what's, what record do you currently have on your turntable? Uh, so my collection is mainly, um, uh, techno and electronic music from pre, uh, pre 1992, so okay. I, I think the last thing the last thing I was probably listening to was some Joey Beltram for those folks who are into electronic music from All right. uh, so uh yeah. Okay, that's cool. That's super uh, the thing is it's it's wonderful because of having we like I said, we've done over 70 meetups. Everybody brings something different to the table. I have some homework to do now to look at electronic music. I'm assuming coming from the UK, from no, the, no, not necessarily. I'm um, yeah. from Detroit. A lot of Detroit. Oh yeah, because of course, which yeah, something yeah. that most Americans don't know that you know the birthplace yeah, yeah. of house is um, Detroit, Chicago. Yeah, so That's a lot true. of stuff from Detroit, a lot of stuff from places like Belgium. You know. Okay. Okay. Very, very good. That's good. Do you, so do you do you DJ or you? Uh, just... So I used to DJ. Uh, yeah, a long time. Uh, I used to DJ and, and run clubs. Okay, for, yeah, but for I about think, 15, 20 years. So, yeah. Do you ever do like, have you ever done like a live stream, like a boiler room kind of thing? I haven't. No, I keep thinking maybe I should. And, uh, should. but yeah. I, I will, well, I will promote you in every way, in every in any way possible. No, because I think it's really, I think it's really cool. But I think luckily now that we are going to start getting back to, you know, some like in person events, there will be even more opportunities to, uh, yeah, that's so. to, to, to get the ones and twos rolling. Anyway, Matt, thank you very, very much for your time thank today. You, it was wonderful having you. And, and I'm sure we'll be seeing you again. And I fully support any application for any involvement, um, more in the CNCF. So happy to help out there too, wherever I cool. can.